uh, Genesis chapter 41, and it's, it's a little bit of a, of a lengthy passage. If you're not able to, uh, to remain standing, um, we understand. Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted, by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them in his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he put me in the chief, he put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Joseph sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it. Sorry, I missed that. I'm sorry. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing by the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I've never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there's no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and let him and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the, land, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Joseph said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of, of Scripture, as we see this pattern that we discussed last week of, of humiliation, exaltation, and provision in the life of Joseph, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and to, to trust in your sovereign providential care. Lord, help us to see how you are indeed sovereign over all things, bringing everything according to its appointed end for your glory and for the good of your people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our own humiliation and exaltation and provision. Lord, for you are our God every bit as much as you are Joseph's God. Lord, help us to see that these things, this humiliation and exaltation and provision points ultimately to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is the provision for our sin. Lord, help us to see with the eyes of faith and help us to look to you, the giver of all good things. For you are the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are the always faithful God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said to the children, in Canada, our prime minister is widely but wrongly considered to be the head of state. As a constitutional monarchy, the executive government and the authority belongs to the crown, the ruling monarch of England, currently Queen Elizabeth II, and is represented by the governor-general. Queen Elizabeth is more than a figurehead. She is our official head of state. But the Prime Minister is the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons, the head of government and our national leader. And the role of the Prime Minister has always included a strong managerial component, as the title suggests. He is the first minister, but he's also the administrator-in-chief of the federal government. And according to the Office of the Privy Council, the, the position of the Prime Minister rests on the exercise of powers in three interrelated areas. Recommending the appointment of individuals to key positions, organizing the cabinet, including portfolio composition and mandates, and providing leadership and direction to the government. This is an enormously powerful position in this country as the Prime Minister controls who are in senior positions of power in the Cabinet and the public service. As the Prime Minister controls the organization of departments and administrative offices, and controls the creation of Crown corporations, and even controls who is appointed in the position of the Governor-General, the Queen's representative. As we look through the history of Canada, many of the Prime Ministers, including our current Prime Minister, are familiar with the halls of power. Many of them are, are drawn from the cultural elites, from well-connected and wealthy families, including this present Prime Minister. Well, Joseph, too, was born into privilege. Joseph was the favored son of the wealthy patriarch Jacob, who himself was favored by God. 
And Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colors. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of them, they hated him and could not even speak civilly to him. And this tension in the family was compounded by Joseph's two dreams. In the first, he, he dreams that he was binding sheaves of grain with his brothers in the field and his sheaf, sheaf stood upright while his brothers' sheaves bowed before his sheaf. His brothers interpreted the dream correctly. Are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? They hated him all the more. And then came a second dream which the sun and moon and 11 stars bowed down before Joseph. And this time, even his father, Jacob, rebuked him. His brothers were jealous, but Jacob kept these things in mind. And it all came to a head when Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers in Shechem, 80 kilometers away. And he finds his brothers in Dothan, another 20 kilometers further. And the brothers see Joseph coming and plot to kill him. But Reuben convinces them to throw him into a pit. And so they, the brothers strip Joseph of his robe and throw him into the pit, planning to kill him later. But Judah convinces them to sell Joseph as a slave to some passing Ishmaelites who then take Joseph as a slave to Egypt to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Meanwhile, the brothers slaughter a goat and pour its blood on the robe and convince Jacob that an animal has killed Joseph. And so chapter 39 begins with Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house. Joseph has, has been humiliated seemingly as low as we can go. But we get a glimmer of hope as we're told that, that God is with Joseph and that Joseph finds favor in Potiphar's house. And that the Lord blesses Potiphar's house because of Joseph. But Joseph is about to be humiliated even further. Things get worse for him when Potiphar's wife sets her sights on Joseph. She repeatedly tries to seduce him and he refuses again and again until finally she grabs hold of him and insists that he lie with her. But we know what happens next. Joseph flees, leaving his robe in her wicked hand. And so she accuses Joseph to her husband of assaulting her, presenting the, the coat, the robe as, as, as exhibit A. She accuses him of, of assaulting her. And in his rage, Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. But even here, we get another glimmer of hope as we're told that the Lord is with Joseph and that Joseph is given a position of responsibility in the prison. Yet a privileged prisoner is still a prisoner. Nonetheless, this sets the scene for chapter 40 when Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker are thrown into prison under Pharaoh's anger and Joseph is told to look after them. And both of them dream troubling dreams. Joseph successfully interprets the dream, telling them that, that interpretations belong to God. And so he gives them God's interpretation of their dreams. The cupbearer will be restored to his original position, but the baker will be executed. Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him to Pharaoh when he is restored to his position. Everything happens exactly as Joseph had said it would, but the cupbearer 
forgets him. So we've seen Joseph's deep humiliation. And here in chapter 41, we're going to see Joseph's exaltation. Not like our politicians from a position of privilege, but here we see Joseph's meteoric rise from the pit to Pharaoh's right hand, from prison rags to royal apparel, from prisoner to prime minister. It's two years, two whole years after the events of chapter 40. Although the Lord had enabled Joseph to accurately interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, the cupbearer forgot. But the Lord didn't forget. Even in Joseph's deepest humiliation, as we saw repeated in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph. This time, Pharaoh is going to be the one who dreams. And the cupbearer is going to remember Joseph. This is a lengthy chapter as, as Pharaoh's dream is told three times by Moses, the narrator, by Pharaoh, and then by Joseph. Through the dream, God is revealing to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Three times in, chapter, in verses 25, 28, and 32, we're told that God is behind this. God is behind this. God is providentially ordaining these events to place Joseph in the position that he has decreed in order for Joseph to save the world from famine. We talked about this on Resurrection Sunday. This is the pattern we've seen throughout this, the scriptures of, of humiliation and exaltation and provision. We see this with Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David with the nation of Israel. But it all points to the humiliation and exaltation and provision we see in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we track quickly through the, the scenes in this chapter. In verses 1 to 7, Pharaoh dreams. Finally, now after two years, things start to move. Pharaoh dreams that he is standing by the Nile River and seven cows, attractive and plump, come up out of the river and begin to feed on the papyrus reeds that grow along the banks of the Nile. Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, emerge from the water. Now these, these malnourished cows provide a stark contrast to the, the healthy ones. Suddenly, the, the skinny cows devour the plump ones. And so Pharaoh wakes up from his dream. And now, had you dreamed this dream, you would probably wake up too, even living in a culture where there isn't much meaning invested in dreams as there was in Pharaoh's. This, this was, a, was a, a disturbing dream for Pharaoh. And perhaps particularly because the, the Nile River is as had such a big role in Egyptian culture. It's the central feature of the Egyptian landscape. It, it cuts through the, right through the middle of the country from south to north as it flows into the Mediterranean Sea. Its annual flood cycle left a, a layer of silt on the ground that provided fertilizer for the Egyptians to plant their crops. The fertilizer that, 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 that provided the crops that, that were needed to feed the country. Walter Brueggemann points out that the Nile River is not only a geographical referent, it is also an expression of the imperial power of fertility. It is administration of the Nile, he says, which permits the king to generate and guarantee life. 
The failure of the Nile and its life system means that the empire does not have in itself the power of life. Brueggemann goes on, an assault on the Nile strikes at the heart of Pharaoh's claim to authority. The river is now characterized by death. The same will be true in Moses' day as the Lord turns the waters of the Nile into blood. There's more going on here than an assault on Egypt's center of economic and social stability. The Nile itself was deified as Happy, the god of fertility, who brought the flooding that enabled the people to survive. Pharaoh, too, was deified as the god Horus, the son of Re, whose chief role was considered to be mediator between the gods and society. So in the coming drought, these false gods of the Egyptian religion are revealed as impotent. However, the sovereign power of the one true God, the omnipotent God, is about to be revealed. Pharaoh went back to sleep and dreamed again, this time seven ears of grain, described similarly as the cattle, plump and good, seven ears of grain growing on one stalk. This, this highlights their potency. Now living as we do, far from Egypt's part of the fertile crescent and even from Canada's expansive grain fields, most of us don't have direct experience with this type of agriculture and its importance. Laurie Crick will probably remember the, the marquee wheat cultivar developed by Dr. Charles Saunders in Canada in 1904. The, the London Daily Express wrote of Saunders at his death that, that he gave more wealth to his country than any other man. They say that Marconi gave power, but Saunders gave abundance. Great lives, these. The power of, of grain, the power of wheat, was the power of life. In that culture, grain is life. The mention of, of grain is, is reminiscent of Joseph's dream where the, the plump good ears are followed by the seven gaunt ears that, and are swallowed by them. These ones are, are thin and blighted ears from the, the east wind that, that blow in from the Sahara Desert. And again, Pharaoh wakes and it was a dream. Now in verses 8 to 13, the cupbearer remembers. The next morning as Pharaoh wakes, he, he's troubled and, and sends for his magicians and his wise men. Well, remember what we said about dreams in chapter 40, that what, what, troubles, what troubled the cupbearer and the baker was that there was no one to interpret their dreams. The Egyptians believed that the, the gods gave you dreams, but not the interpretation, so they relied on professional dream interpreters who were purported to be gifted by the gods in these magical arts. But like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, Pharaoh told them the dreams, but they were powerless to interpret them. Pharaoh, who's considered a god himself, could not interpret the dream, but, and even his supposedly divinely gifted interpreters couldn't interpret the dream. Now, as for the dreams of the, the cupbearer and the baker, there was, there was no in interpretation because there was, there was no interpreter. But now, it's not for lack of interpreter, but there's still no interpretation. This is a, another satirical display of the impotence of the gods of Egypt. Enter the cupbearer. Verse 9. He says to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. He acknowledges that he has been sinfully 
delinquent in his duties to Joseph. Finally, after two years, Pharaoh's uninterpreted dream jogs his memory, and so he relays to Pharaoh the events in the prison, how he and the baker in prison, and each one dreamed a dream, and the young, young Hebrew accurately interpreted their dreams for them. The cupbearer was restored to his office, and the baker was hanged. It had been two full years. I wonder if Joseph was, was tempted to despair during that season. I wonder if he was tempted to anxiety. I wonder if you were tempted to despair or anxiety as you wait for deliverance from your trial, whatever it is that you are currently going through. You think you've, you've fallen as far as you can go and then you fall lower still. You get a glimmer of hope and then nothing seems to come to fruition. And it all seems so unfair. Maybe you're, you're tempted to give up. Maybe you're even tempted to doubt God's character. But don't judge the story by the middle. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. In God's timing, two years or, or 20 years or 2,000 years is but an instant. Time and truth go hand in hand. Joseph is about to experience deliverance. Joseph is about to be exalted to the position the Lord has foreordained for him. Joseph is about to do the good work that God has prepared in advance for him to walk in. Ephesians 2.10 and Galatians 6.9 Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. Don't look to your external circumstances, but to your eternal circumstances. Don't, don't think as though this is always the way it's going to be. This is an illusion. This life is, is not as real as our eternal life. This life is temporary. Your eternal life is forever. And so, so ultimately, we're, we're waiting for the Lord's return. For the, the, this is when all injustice is going to end. This is when every wrong is going to be made right. Remember Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. For the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should, re should reach repentance. This is the deliverance and exaltation that God's people look for. This is the, the ultimate deliverance that, that we seek. In verses 14 to 24, Pharaoh relays the dream. Now Pharaoh sends for Joseph and they quickly bring Joseph out of the pit. But he's not just being delivered from the pit of this prison. He's being metaphorically delivered from the pit that his brothers had thrown him into 13 years prior. 13 years as a slave and a prisoner are overturned in an instant. Like judgment, when deliverance comes, it comes quickly. Joseph, is, 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 he shaves. His shaving was an Egyptian custom, not a Jewish one. He, he changes his clothes. Changing clothes is something we've seen repeatedly in this Toledot. 
This, this too is a reversal. His brothers had removed his robe of many colors as they threw him into the pit. And, he, and then he wore the garments of a slave and then the garments of a prisoner. Now he receives a change of clothes and is brought before Pharaoh. Verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Pharaoh here is using the similar language that the officials had used in chapter 40. Well, Joseph replies using similar language as he did in chapter 40. Similar language that's also used by Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. It is not in me. That's one word in Hebrew. It's not in me. Pharaoh is off course. Again, Joseph is glorifying God. Again, he's demonstrating an, a confidence in the Lord's omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his faithfulness. Joseph has remained faithful to God because God has remained faithful to him. Gordon Wenham says that though Joseph is thus being humble about himself, he is at the same time offering something better, the divine interpretation of the dreams. And so Joseph continues, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh reiterates the dream to Joseph. He adds a, a few details emphasizing the emaciated condition of the cows. They're, they're like nothing he's seen in Egypt. He adds that the consumption of the healthy cattle didn't change the appearance of the skinny ones. They ate and they were still skinny. These details hint at the unprecedented severity of what is coming. Pharaoh repeats the fact that no one could explain the dream to him. Again, the, um, the impotence of the Egyptian religious system is being put on display. The stage is set. In verses 25 to 36, Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph explains to Pharaoh that the dreams of Pharaoh are one. The two dreams have one interpretation. They have one meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph says it again in verse 28. God is revealing what he is about to do. In verses 29 to 31, Joseph explains that the seven cows are seven fruitful years and the seven skinny cows are seven years of famine. Joseph provides a, a brief description of the, the years of plenty, but, but layers detail upon detail about the severity of the famine. All the plenty will be forgotten. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will be unknown because of the famine. It will be very severe. Well, then Joseph adds in verse 32 that the doubling of the dream assures that the famine is determined by God and that God is about to do it. It is imminent. Three times we're, we're told in this section that God is the one who's doing it. Let's follow with me, please. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God is sovereign, even over things like droughts. God is providentially guiding all things to their appointed end for his glory and for the good of his people. Verses 33 to 36, Joseph goes beyond what Pharaoh asked him to do. He, he gives advice on how to weather the storm. 
this is a, a dark providence, but it's not time just to, to roll over and die. The, the, they need to act, and the time to act is now. Joseph says that, that Pharaoh should select a wise and discerning man over the land of Egypt. Joseph is, uh, explains then to Pharaoh that they should then appoint overseers to take 20% of the produce during the years of plenty and then store it as a reserve against the seven years of famine so that the country sh should not be wiped out or cut down. Now Joseph doesn't know it yet, but he's, he's creating his own job description. He's revealing himself to be a wise and discerning man. But just as the interpretation of the dream came from God, so does Joseph's wisdom and his discernment. Joseph can take no more credit for this plan than he could for the interpretation of the dream. It's all from God. Neither can you take credit for your wisdom or for the things that you do right. You can only take credit for your mistakes and for your sins, but thankfully, brothers and sisters, God is at work even in those He's working even your mistakes and your sins out for your good and for his glory. And finally, in verses 37 to 45, finally in, in the life of Joseph, we see Joseph exalted. Joseph is exalted. Pharaoh and his servants are pleased with Joseph's proposal. And so the king and his advisors, they recognize Joseph's wisdom. Pharaoh declares to his servants in verse 38, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now Pharaoh here is saying more than he understands. The Spirit of God is indeed in Joseph. Pharaoh now acknowledges that God has revealed this to Joseph and recognizes Joseph's unmatched wisdom and discernment. So this job description that, that Joseph outlined became his resume. Pharaoh sets Joseph over his house and over the nation. He places him second only to the throne. Joseph becomes the prime minister or, or vizier of all of Egypt. Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 41, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh takes his, his signet ring and puts it on Joseph's hand. This is a sign of, of royal authority. He clothes Joseph in fine linen and puts a gold chain around his neck. This is yet another change of clothes. Joseph's time of humiliation is over. His, his time of exaltation has begun. Joseph is given to ride in the second chariot and the people throughout the country were to bow the knee to him. And again, Pharaoh pronounces Joseph's authority. I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Verse 44, Pharaoh is the only one who is exempt from Joseph's rule. Like Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zephanath-Paniah. Although the meaning of the name is not known for certain, it's generally understood to mean something like the God has said he will live. And then Pharaoh gives Joseph a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. Now On will later be called Heliopolis by the Greeks. It's, Greeks, it's the, the center of worship for the Egyptian sun gods, Re and Atom. There, there's questions here about Joseph's marriage to the daughter of a pagan priest. The, Joseph, the Jewish Midrash contends that 
that Asenath was the daughter of, of Dinah and Shechem, giving her Jewish roots. But of course, this is speculation. We can see here from, from Joseph's marriage into this priestly caste that, that his power is further enhanced. He's now freed from the pit. Joseph goes out to survey the land. Egypt, the land that had been until now the land of his captivity, is now the land of his dominion. Then in verses 46 to 57, Joseph is fruitful. Joseph's part in the story began back when he was 17. Now he's 30. It's going to be another nine years before the story reaches its climax, two years into the drought in chapter 45, when his brothers come to him looking for food. It'll be more than 20 years after his, brother, after his brothers sold him into slavery, a, a length of time similar to Abraham's wait for a promised son, and Jacob's exile with Laban in Haran. But Joseph, as we see at the end of Genesis, will rule Egypt for 80 years. In verses 47 to 49, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the dream and the fulfillment of Joseph's instructions. We're told that the earth produced abundantly and grain was stockpiled adjacent to each city. Joseph stored the, the grain in abundance like the sand of the sea. And it soon became such an abundant supply that the documenting the grain was no longer feasible. So they left off. In verses 50 to 52, Joseph himself becomes fruitful. Two sons are born to him. Coming before the famine, they are symbolic of the years of plenty in Egypt. And the practice we've seen throughout Genesis of giving sons meaningful names, Joseph names the boys. The names reflect his attitude towards the events of his life. They are Hebrew names showing his continued affiliation with his heritage. The first he named Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew for making to forget. And Joseph explains that God has made me forget my hardship and my father's house. God has made Joseph forget the strife that led to his slavery. The second son, Joseph names Ephraim, which sounds like the Hebrew making fruitful. He says that God has made my life fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now these sons are going to figure prominently later on in this Toledo as Jacob blesses them at the end of his life. But in verse 53, we see the beginning of the next phase of the fulfillment of Pharaoh's dreams. The years of plenty have come to an end and the years of famine begin just as God has revealed to Joseph. The famine, we're told, now spread beyond the border of Egypt into the surrounding lands. But because of the wisdom God has given to Joseph, Egypt itself is well provided for. The people of Egypt come to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh directs them to Joseph telling the people to do whatever he tells them to do. And Joseph opens the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians because the famine was severe. Now all the earth comes to Egypt to buy grain because the famine is severe in all the earth. Because Palestine was watered by rainfall and Egypt by the Nile, a drought that would, would only very rarely affect both. This must have been an extremely severe event. Joseph has been humiliated and humiliated again, and now he's being exalted. But Joseph's exaltation is not an end unto itself. 
Joseph's exaltation is not so in a few chapters he can thumb his nose at his brothers and say, I told you so. His exaltation isn't merely to vindicate him. Now maybe you have been humiliated. Of course, not to the level of Joseph, but maybe people have, have treated you unfairly. Maybe people have judged you wrongly. Maybe you're waiting for your exaltation. But if you're waiting for your exaltation for its own sake or for your own sake, you're missing the point. Maybe you're still waiting for your exaltation because you have to go through more humbling. If you are in Christ, you will be exalted. Maybe in this life, but certainly in the next. But your exaltation is not for you. It might just be for the provision of others. It might just be so that, that you can be able to come and help others from a position of humility. Joseph could say correctly to his brothers in chapter 45, verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So we wonder, does, does the fulfillment of these, of these dreams that, that Pharaoh's had, does it stir up Joseph's hope for the fulfillment of his own dreams? But again, your exaltation is, is not for you. Just as much as it was not for Joseph. Your exaltation is not so that you can be vindicated by others. Your exaltation is not so that you will look good before others, but so that God will be glorified before all. In chapter 41, Joseph has been exalted, not by Pharaoh, but by God. God, though not the author of sin, used Joseph's brothers for Joseph's humiliation. God used the false accusations of Potiphar's wife to humiliate him further. And the, and the cupbearer's failure to remember to humiliate him even further. And fulfillment of, his, of, of this dream came, of Pharaoh's dream, and fulfillment of Joseph's dream would come as, as his brothers come to him. And eventually as his whole family comes to him looking for food. So not just the cupbearer's and the baker's dream were fulfilled, not just Pharaoh's dream was fulfilled, but Joseph's dream is being fulfilled here. Pharaoh recognizes that, that God is with Joseph. Again, from Gordon Wenham. God is more evidently with Joseph than ever before, for he is miraculously summoned from prison, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and is appointed second in the kingdom to Pharaoh himself. God is providentially ordaining these things to, be, to place Joseph in the position that he has decreed for him in order to save the world from famine. And it all points to the humiliation and exaltation and provision we see in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God delivered Joseph from prison to save the world from famine. God would deliver Israel from Egypt and exalt them as a holy nation in order to bless the world through them. Fulfillment of Genesis 12.3. 
God would deliver Jesus from the tomb on the third day and exalt him through his resurrection and ascension as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in order to save the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And all of this is still in the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12.3, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Lord blessed Potiphar's wife for Joseph's sake, 39.5. Here God blesses Egypt for Joseph's sake to save the world, Genesis 41.57. And in 45.7, again, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive, to keep alive for you many survivors. And again, in the fullness of time, God will save his people by sending his son into the world. In Joseph's humiliation and exaltation and provision, we see Joseph as a type of Christ. The Spirit of God dwelt with Joseph, Genesis 41-38, and in Jesus, Matthew 3-16. Joseph is the prophet bringing God's word to Pharaoh. Jesus is the prophet bringing God's word to the world, Hebrews 1-2. and 2. All the people bow the knee to Joseph. All the people and everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. Philippians 2.10 Joseph was exalted to Pharaoh's right hand to rule as prime minister of Egypt. Jo Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God in Acts 2.33 to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. The story of Joseph, as we, we see who God is in, in exalting this man who has been humiliated unjustly and used of God to provide for many people to save many lives, is a picture of Jesus Christ. As we see the pattern of humiliation and exaltation and provision. And as those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, you too can trust that in Christ, your humiliation will give way to your exaltation and provision for many for the glory of God's name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider your providential rule, of the universe as we consider your sovereignty over all things. Lord, we admit that at times we doubt, at times we question because we don't understand what you're doing. But Lord, you are the omniscient God. You are the omnipotent God working out all things, everything, in all history for your glory and for the good of your people. So Lord, we pray that as your people who have been called by your name, that you'd help us to look to the humiliation and exaltation and provision that comes through Jesus Christ. That we might be empowered and equipped for the power of your Holy Spirit to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.